The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty and I'm joined today by Kevin Maguire and we have a special guest, Angela Smith, who is the Labour leader of the House of Lords and we're recording it from her very nice offices in the House of Lords. Uh, Angela Smith was a Labour MP from 1997 to 2010. She was an aide to Gordon Brown. She was a Cabinet Office Minister. And since 2015, you've been the Labour leader in the House of Lords. I have indeed. Yes, since 2015. Feels a bit longer at times. (laughs) And you're from Essex. And so your proper title is Lady Basildon. No, my proper title oh, is thank you for Baroness. Me already. <laughs> Baroness with the Basildon. My Twitter name is Lady Basildon. Okay, we'll come to that, Erin. <laughs> and we are very pleased to be here because next week the EU of Draw Bill yeah. is coming to the House of Lords after quite a bumpy ride in the House of Commons. And hopefully you're going to explain to us what's going to happen and how the Lords, particularly on the Labour side, are going to react to this piece of legislation, which is quite crucial because if you defeat it or overturn it or amend it, it has major consequences for Brexit. Is that right? Yeah, the Lords can't defeat a, a bill at second reading. No, that's not what we're here. But we will do. I think it's make some significant changes. And I was reading through some of the debates in the House of Commons just uh, over the weekend. And what is really clear is the House of Commons really wants us to make some amendments to this. Even government ministers are saying, well, we look at this issue again in the Lords or we bring forward amendments in the Lords. I suppose typically what you'll see on this bill is a difference between the two houses because the government's been really quite ideological about this bill and they have this thing they don't like amendments, they've got to be a clean bill. So somehow an amendment makes it dirty. What MPs are saying, and some government ministers, is there's things to be sorted out here. Let the Lords do its revising job. So any amendments we pass, and I think there will be some, it needs some amendment. It's a deeply flawed bill. We'll go back to the Commons for MPs to have another look or a first look at new things. Now, so just to give a bit of context, the, the EU of draw bill is taking all the legislation which has existed for 40 years as part of our membership of the European Union back into English statute. But it has other bits attached to it as well, such as giving ministers what they call Henry VIII powers. Yeah. And it has about setting a, whether MPs, they have the term of government to get a kind of vote on whether, when we should leave the European Union, that we actually, they have a final say on the deal. How much pressure are you under to accept the will of a referendum? As when they voted in June 2016? That was the previous bill. The will of the referendum was expressed in the Article 50 bill, where the Lords made some amendments to it. Commons didn't accept them under pressure from the government, although I think they pretty much agreed with them, if I'm honest. Um, this bill is about how we leave and if we can keep those protections in law, not just on day one when we leave, but if they stay in law and how the government can change them. And the problem with this bill is a lot of those issues that people don't think of. The things we've got rights at work, how we're employed, consumer rights, if you buy dodgy goods, there's all kinds of issues, environment protection that we benefit from, that we just accept. And we've been part of bringing those into law, along with European colleagues and other European countries, over 40 years. If we're bringing those into the UK law, what you can't have is the next day, the stroke of a ministerial pen to change it. There has to be a proper process and legislation. So that's the kind of sort of techie stuff we'll be looking at. Interestingly, the second reading debate, which is a debate on the principles of the bill next week, I think will be the longest ever second reading debate in modern history here in the House of Lords. House of Commons, it took 14 hours. Here we've scheduled for over 20 hours. So a lot of peers want to speak, but the crucial period will be after that when we get into committee and we're debating the detailed amendments. 
It's basically be a very pragmatic, sensible debate, I think, but it will be quite techy at times because the bill at the moment isn't fit for purpose. Tory MPs in the Commons, they say they towed the line and they're waiting to see what comes back from the Lords, just as, as you yeah. say. How, how much legitimacy do you think you have um, to, to change the bill when the you know, MPs themselves made a few amendments, certainly if you want in a meaningful yeah. vote and so on? If the Commons is changing the bill, do you feel you have more right to change it yourselves in the Lords? Well, we always still have got some authority to send things back to the Commons to look again. When we say the Lords change a bill, the Lords in itself can't change a bill. What we do, we propose changes, we may pass those amendments, and we send them back to the House of Commons. The House of Commons always has the final say. So in most cases, that tends to be very helpful to the House of Commons, because some of the trickier issues that they want to think about a bit longer or look at again, and perhaps with some new slant on it, new, new thoughts on it, go back to the House of Commons. This is sort of the normal process. More often than not, we see the government saying, actually, yeah, you've got a point, we haven't thought about that, and they change it themselves. But on something like this, you find the government gets sort of stuck in a groove that they terrified of change in case they look weak. And actually, if you look at the detail of this bill, if they want this bill to work, they're going to have to recognise there needs to be some changes. So we'll be less sort of ideologically partisan at this end of the bill. And I think it'll just be quite, it will be quite boring for some people. If they sort of sit and watch because it will be that detail that not everyone enjoys, but it's got to be done if this bill's going to be done right. Could you have votes on, for instance, saying stay in the customs union and the single market? They, you could. They don't fit into this bill particularly well because this is not about the negotiations that the government's got to do. And our position is, don't, Theresa May, I can't believe it. She just takes those off the table. We're not talking about that. And that's the very thing government should yeah. be negotiating and talking about. But this bill will be more about making sure we've got the legal basis for transition because the last thing we want is that, that cliff edge taking out this rather ridiculous sort of silly exit date the government's got. We know when we're leaving, but you need to have a period to have proper transitional debates. Let's make sure we give the government time and space to do those. Making sure we have a, a better protection for environmental rights and protections, all those kinds of things. So I say it gets a bit techy. I think it's fascinating, but I'm actually confident we'll give the government back to the House of Commons a better bill than the one left there. And... and What's going to be kind of, how would you say the centre of gravity in the House of Lords is on this? I mean, it will vary from issue to issue, to be honest. Um, you know, there are different views around the House of Lords. One thing I think the House of Lords will be pretty tight on is these Henry VIII powers, as they're known, um, which nobody else knows what means. It sounds quite bizarre, but basically it's having not to have a proper debate on something, proper legislation, but stroke of a ministerial pen or a quick order with no proper debate or amendment to change laws. That's not how we like to do things here. We like Parliament to look at things properly. So it's those kind of things about the government taking powers to itself rather than giving powers to Parliament that will be, I think, right at the heart of a lot of what we do here. I'm trying to get my head around uh, the Prime Minister taking Henry VIII powers to be the May Queen. But the, the Conservative Party was pretty... It, it towed the line. It towed the whip largely in the House of Commons. There mm. was that rebellion um, over having the meaningful yep. vote. Uh, there was a row over, oh, do you have the date in, do you not have the date in, then you put it in, yep. does it count anything? Do you think the Conservative peers in the, you know, in the House of Lords, are they whippable? Can she impose her will and get them? They're the biggest party, aren't they? They're the biggest block. They're the biggest party here. And, of course, we've seen so many new Tories come in since um, David Cameron's time. 
Um, so yeah, they will try to do that. And you know, the government doesn't like making amendments, even when it suits them. But the government itself has said on this bill, we need to make amendments. It's going to bring forward its own amendments to the House of Lords, particularly on devolution. We may see others. So you know, we know that when we did the Article 50 bill, we had two amendments, one on the issue about the EU nationals living in the UK, which had an effect on UK nationals living in Europe. And the, the second one was on the meaningful vote at the end. Both of those went down to the House of Commons and the pressure that the government put on Tory MPs not to support them was enormous. And we know there were Tories that voted with the government that agreed with us. If you look at how things have played out, how much easier would it have been from the government if they accepted those two amendments to the bill? It would have made the negotiations a lot easier, it would have started from a better place. But there was this sort of ideological um, thing, we can't accept amendments. I just think some Tory MPs are going to think, hang on, there is a thought here. Let's have a look at something again. The Canadians call their second chamber, the equivalent of the House of Lords, the chamber of sober second thought. <laughs> I quite like that. No. <laughs> we'll have a think about this. Uh, <laughs> Too many now, I am afraid. <laughs> yeah, times, times have changed. It's got a mug of water here if that's any interest. <laughs> yeah, so are you worried about a kind of the reputation of the, of the House of Lords? I mean, you saw the right-wing press really go few Tory rebels, you know, they were the saboteurs, the kind of... Mutineers. Mutineers. It got very nasty. And already some of the Brexiteers have done some kind of sabre-rattling, saying, you know, the Lords, don't they dare kind of obstruct this legislation, it be anti-democratic, you know, you're unelected. Uh, does that worry you? Is that, a, is that in the back of your mind as, as this would go through? Not in terms of what I do here in the House of Lords. It's always in the back of my mind how we as a country debate issues and it sounds a little bit pompous but if we're not going to have a proper open debate about issues of people who hold a different view just want to attack those who want to express their particular view or say think about this look at the detail of it you know it is a very unpleasant situation when you have a headline like enemies of the people for example because the judges say parliament should make a decision on something so i think it's a very unhealthy thing that's happening in politics and in public life how does it affect us we have to deal with it you know, and social media is another aspect of this, I will get loads of messages, half of which will say, you're the House of Lords, you have no right to debate this, and the other half will say, you're debating this, why don't you block it? Um, so from both sides, you get that pressure. What you have to do is what you think is the right thing to do. House of Lords is pretty limited in what we can do. All we can do, and all we should be able to do, we're not elected, is say, these are some issues we want to debate, bring what expertise we have to bear, what knowledge we have to bear on them. If we think there should be amendments, ask the House of Commons to look at those amendments again. You'll be in good company if you're attacked when the Tory press, Conservative right, UKIP and various yeah, yeah. extremists, uh, MPs can be elected. As long they, as the Daily Mirror doesn't attack them, uh, they all, uh, <laughs> MPs can be elected. They can be elected from Remain constituencies. Yeah. And if they don't tow yeah. the Brextremist line, they'll still be attacked. Yeah. But do you feel in the, in the House of Lords, in some way, you know, a lot but a more scrutiny of the House of Lords, that's good in many ways, but do you think until you have a, a fully elected second chamber, There'll always be that little chink in your armour when you fight back. Yes, your constitutional position is there, your revising ch uh, chamber. Mm. It's, your, it's your role to look at the legislation and amend it and try and make, yeah. it, make it work. But until the chamber is fully elected, you will always be vulnerable to attack. It hasn't stopped the House of Commons being vulnerable to attack and they're all elected. So yeah. I don't see that's the key issue. The key issue is how we use what powers we've got. There are lots of things I would change about the House of Lords. 
my worry about a fully elected house would be you just become a replica of the House of Commons. And I think we have a very limited role. And if I was elected, I don't think I'd want to accept the limited role that we have at the moment of just scrutiny, revision and suggestion to the House of Commons. If I'm elected to a position, I want some power that goes with that. So there are, you know, there's arguments on both sides of that. But you know, being attacked isn't just people who are unelected. People under attack now in public life are people in all kinds of roles, including those elected. And it's not healthy for a proper democratic debate. And you think this has got a lot worse since social media, or as you just said, it's got part a lot of a polarisation of politics as well? It's or? a bit of a both. There's no doubt that Brexit has been hugely divisive in this country. And when Theresa May made that first speech um, after she became Prime Minister, she had an opportunity there to do something that could have brought people together, say, with listen, there's a majority in favour of Brexit. It's not overwhelming, but it was decisive. How do we move forward on this? I'll look at this, I'll take... But she didn't. She chose to actually increase the division. And I think that is quite worrying. And the fact that, my own view is the government's been totally incompetent on Brexit. They had no idea what they were going to do. They had no plans for it. They got forced dragging and screaming into the House of Commons to get a vote on it to start the process. So that incompetence, I think, feeds into the debate because people who strongly supported Brexit must worry that this government really is doing a poor job on it so that everybody is feeling uncomfortable. So, you know, it's a sign of the times and where we're going at the moment, unfortunately. And social media plays into that. The answer is not to look at it. I just block people. Is that what you do now? Because you must be you must be concerned. You yeah. will get, particularly as a female politician, it is far more, you, you notice it, far mm. more women than the male politicians. But some of the stuff, for instance, Anna Suwi, Conservative MP, has yeah. suffered absolutely appalling... If you're moving amendments to the bill, it might be perfectly sensible. You're accepting Brexit's happening. This is about you leave. Where do you go when you leave? But nevertheless, for some people, uh, they're kind of, quite frankly, they're maniacs out there. And they just love sitting in their, their bedrooms, tweeting and Facebooking away and just sending the most awful yeah. poison. And there are times you have to report it to security when something's particularly unpleasant, you're worried about the reaction. That has to be reported. Um, because you, know, you may think you can deal with it, but you don't know what they're saying to anybody else, anything else. But you know, you just have to accept that. You know, twenty years ago, if somebody had was angry with a politician, they'd get a piece of paper out, they'd write a letter, find an envelope, have to seal it up, go and buy a stamp, and actually, by the time they got that far, they're probably fed up with the idea anyway and didn't bother. Now you can instantly make a communication, and I think you know one of the things I learned when I was a member of Parliament in the House of Commons was that people would often let off steam and be sent you a really angry email and they were entitled to, they were cross and you could accept that and you'd write back and the number of times people say, yeah, I'm sorry, I had to let off steam to someone, I knew you'd listen and I have no problem with that whatsoever. It's when it then goes over the line and there are threats and unpleasantness and some of my colleagues um, have faced the most appalling abuse. You mentioned Anna Subri, I can name you a dozen others. I don't know really a single... Um, female MP, certainly the ones I talked to, hasn't at some point had a death threat. Now, when Joe Cox was murdered, one of the things I said in the House, and it was obviously a very emotional day um, for everybody, was if a young person said to their parents, oh, I want to get involved in politics, I want to get involved in public life, I care about this so much, I want to do something, I want their parents, their friends and family to be proud of them, not frightened for them. You were a Northern Ireland minister. Do you think the abuse has got worse since then? That was a very charged situation. It was, um, but I have to say I found some of the people I dealt with the most charming, decent, nice people I ever dealt with. Um, and also people perhaps 
it's sort of the ongoing argument. They'd be quite vociferous in debate with you and then say, do you want a cup of tea afterwards? Um, but yeah, there were times there when that got very... Um, when I was in Northern Ireland, I would have two protection officers and then the guys with guns with you the whole time. That was uh, something I hadn't expected when I went over as a minister. No, you need a Twitter or a Facebook filter. <laughs> There's a mute button, which means they can still let off steam. You just don't read it. Do you think Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn has done enough to kind of tackle can, this? Can anybody ever do enough? I think it's got a life of its own. I think we all have to call it out. And I do think we have to report the most unpleasant um, cases. Um, I had one recently where comments at the end made me very nervous of what the person could possibly do not necessarily to me but generally and you feel deeply uncomfortable so it might be just somebody letting off steam and being angry but can you take that risk you don't you have to report it how many cases have you had to report me not many personally not many but you talk to other women mps for instance diane abbott the shadow home secretary the, the racism and misogyny yeah. Is, it's stomach churning she doesn't she hasn't spoke about it much over the years but it is stomach churning um, but there are some unpleasant people out there. And I, what I can't work out in my mind, are people that send these kind of emails and messages, do they know how hurtful they can be? Even the toughest person I know, when they get a constant barrage of abuse, that's not very nice for them, and their families hate it. Um, do the people who send them, do they know they're causing that much hurt and upset? Do they mean to do it, or do they just not care or not think about it? And I think for some of them, he said, do you realise how upset this was and the trauma this caused this person's family? They might think again. Others might delight in it. And presumably, as you say, it will put people off coming into public life. I know. It worries me because it shouldn't. It really shouldn't because, you know, the rewards from public life, be able to do something you believe in. Remember, I started off working for a campaign organisation. I worked for the League Against Cruel Sports for a number of years. We eventually got hunting banned. We've got new legislation on badger baiting. Um, and I can, you know, several pieces of law I've been involved in, stuff in Parliament. The rewards of seeing something you believe in come to fruition are enormous. If you're a constituency MP, the rewards of being able to help people individually or them highlighting something that's happened to them and getting a policy change through as a result, they're huge, they're enormous, and society needs those decent good people to come forward across parties. Otherwise, we just give in to the nasty element. Look, also, this is partly about kind of representation when people look at... It's got slightly better in the House of Commons, but there's still you know, a minority of women MPs. Mm. You look at the House of Lords and the, in the demographics, it's very old still. It seems quite privileged. You know, you are almost a fish out of water in many respects. <laughs> Curiously, it's interesting. Look at the backgrounds of some of the members of the House of Lords, yeah. especially on my side. You've got quite a strong working class backgrounds. You know, my mum and dad, you know, we still live in the council house that I grew up in. Um, quite can't believe that somebody like me is here. Um, and yet there are a lot of people like me here. You've got these extremes of people in the Lords. I think the House of Lords will always look a bit older. Because if you bring people in to be a revising chamber that's supposed to be experienced, you don't want, if you're young and energetic, just go run around, knock on doors and get elected. So it tends to be a bit older. But yeah, the demographics and public life, I think, aren't good as a whole, whether it's business, you know, both male journalists here interviewing me it's today. True. <laughs> um, no, we need your to... age sitting in the background. He's he your special. He's male. Yeah, and sound man's male. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Women amongst men here. But I spent too much of my political life being um, one of the few women in a room, and I you know, 
the House of Lords reflects political life as a whole, and yeah, it's got to be changes. Absolutely, it's got to be changes in the House of Lords. Do you think the image of the Lords would be better if you didn't dress in ermine? Absolutely. You know, the, the, what people see is the state, the state only. And apart, yeah. apart from that, you wouldn't wear ermine. Uh, uh, I you know. You know being an animal, ha- if it's the real thing. Oh, if it's an I was an animal. Right? <laughs> no, 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 can't blame me. I'm not one of these tweeters uh, you know, sending abuse. Yeah, we like to insult our guests. <laughs> but, you know, but, but most days, right, you come you come in, in office clothes. Yeah. But clothes people, Every day we come in office clothes. Yeah, apart yeah. from, you know, it's big occasions when you dress up in, know. you know, And it makes us look ridiculous, dress. yeah. But, I that, was, but that's the image people have. Because you guys only print those photographs. If you put a photograph of me tomorrow, it won't be me and my native blue dress here today it'll be me in that silly um robe thing yeah Robertian um, outfit yeah and i can say that i never ever have fur on my robe there's a special fake fur there's several fake fur because i'm not the only one that won't wear fur yeah i'd get away with them tomorrow and it's actually been our policy in labor party labor peers would get rid of them tomorrow it's a nonsense um, and it is partly a nonsense because the press want a photograph of a peer or the house of lords they use the robes um you know it's so i think the next time we'll wear them is probably about 18 months away um so that's probably one of the worst aspects of the job i had as leader because i have to go to certain occasions whereas before i could just bunk out and not go <laughs> i have to go now and wear the silly dress but what, if, what about kind of cutting the number of peers yeah know, absolutely the yeah the largest legislative chamber in yeah. the world after china isn't it now i mean i yeah. know the, the tory law speaker lord fowler he's recommended that this, yeah it, yeah, no, absolutely. Is that ever going to happen? I mean, well, we, it's they, absolutely, they will talk about it. Yeah, we've talked about it. We agree it. It's no, government won't provide any legislative time. So the House of Lords has taken it into our own hands to say, look, there's a proposal here. Um, and basically, the proposal is we get down to having smaller than the House of Commons. And although on paper there's something like 800 or something, in reality, they, you know, we never get that number here. Um, but if you worked on a basis number small in the House of Commons, for every two that leave here, by whatever means, um, only one comes back, one new appointment, and people should do a 15-year term. So you limit the time people are here. So you get a turnover, so you get new experience and new ideas coming in. Um, that, alongside some other suggestions as well, has been put forward. It's in the government's hands now. If the government agreed to limit their appointments and take some restraint, that can happen tomorrow. But, now, I've made an offer to Theresa May with the total approval of Jeremy Corbyn that there's with a lot of talk now about a new list coming in, that we should take what's called the Burns Report, these new changes to reduce the size, take it from the last elections. Any people who have left since then, retired or deceased, and new ones come in are part of that formula. We will do that. We promise to do that. If Theresa May does it, we won't then. When we get into government change, it will accept that. So you'll reduce the labour, the size of the labour contingent if the Liberal Democrats are huge uh, and the Conservatives come down Yeah, to... there's a formula but it's in the Burns report. All it needs is the government to show the kind of restraint we showed in government on appointments. But no, David Cameron appointed more peers per year than any other Prime Minister since 1958. He appointed a greater proportion of government peers um, and of course, because he wanted the support of the Lib Dems in government, he put a load of Lib Dem peers in. in. And of course, surprise, surprise, they turned against him um, after a while. He didn't, didn't need them anymore. And now they're in opposition. You know, it's a ludicrous situation. Yeah. But the, there are another batch, speculation, two two or three Labour. Yeah. Dozen or so Conservatives. So if, if, they, if that's going to happen, Theresa May should say, right, we accept Burns, and they come as part of the formula. So if more are coming in, they have to get... Others have to leave. That's you, fair. Have you decided the Labour names? Uh, that's a matter for the leader's office. Would you yeah. like to share it with us? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Jeremy. Um, and yeah, look forward to having new peers. Our, our 
our group um, is probably one of the oldest groups because we haven't had new peers in, we've only had a few peers for quite some time. So uh, our peers are working their clogs off reinforcements in small numbers, given that we are losing a number would be welcome. But I think it has to be fair numbers here, doesn't it? But you can understand the frustration when they see peers voting, let's say, kind of once a year or sometimes, you know, just even just once a month is pretty pathetic. Yeah. And they get all the privileges of being a member of this exclusive club. Yeah. And they don't carry out their duties. You yeah. can see why if people don't carry out their duties, don't expect me to defend that. People have to carry out their duties. Don't just take it on voting, though, because there are some members who aren't as vocal and obvious as others working away on committees. So if you, I think you should take the whole of the work that someone does. But yeah, we're quite clear. If you come in here, there's a job of work to be done. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do other things as well, because the experience from people outside, like Joan Bakewell, very active on our benches, also um, works in journalism. You've got you know, people of all ages, have got different backgrounds. Robert Winston, who's a medical doctor, brings that expertise here. David Putnam um, in the film world, he brings that expertise here. So there are people who do other things and use that expertise here. There are others, like me, who are here all day, every day. You need a balance, but you've got there's a job of work to be done. If you're not prepared to do that, you shouldn't be here. What about those who leave being given dining rights so they can come in and yeah. use the club? Do, do you have to swallow that uh, just as a compromise or do you think it's absolutely crazy? Not my decision. I think it's a bit crazy, partly because if you're here and you're working, you need to get something to eat quickly. You don't want to be pushing somebody past in the queue who's here for even now. In reality, my understanding is they, people might use it once or twice and then don't bother. They, they don't use them. But I am uncomfortable. It shouldn't be dining rights here. The the facilities here for people who are working here and it's not just the peers it's our staff it's the staff of the house it's the cleaners it's the people who you know the attendants there's a whole range of people have to eat in the house and the dining facilities should be for those who are working here you're bringing guests from time to time and that's nice to bring people in for bites to eat you and i have had a bite to eat here um yeah, but yeah it's a working lunch and that's what it should be do you think it's like kind of anachronistic as well that you kind of have seats allocated for bishops but in a multi-faith society, there's no imams, there's no rabbis, there's no Catholic bishops. Is that not? I think it's a general view on that. It's, it also seems a bit sort of strange. And I think one of the ways people have tried to change that is to look at one of the cross-bench appointments to bring people in of other faiths as well. The bishops, have, I think, have sort of accepted that if the highest the house reduced, the number of bishops have to reduce. Having said all that, when I, before I came in here, I'd think, what on earth have we got people here who are bishops? I have to say they're often worth listening to. Um, because they're dealing with the constituency. They are often at the sharp ends of a lot of problems. You hear bishops talk on food banks. They are actually working on food banks in their church. So I feel more benign towards bishops being here, having listened and heard what they've got to say. They understand society because they're often at the sharp end of it. So the bishops are worth listening to as long as they don't talk about religion. <laughs> there's lots of different <laughs> religions. Don't often talk about religion. There's, a, there's an annual debate the Archbishop of Canterbury does, but it's not often talk about religion here. Yeah. Do you think the, the young Angela Smith, you know, the, the, girl, <laughs> the girl from Titsy, from setting out on a political career, a big campaigner, would, would be, one, amazed that you got this far, and two, do you think she would have approved? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I sometimes think, though, if I'd known then what I'd be doing now, I'd just got back under the covers and hid. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified. Uh, you know, there's nobody from my background got involved in politics um, it was completely alien to us. We didn't know, we didn't know politicians. Yeah, so my mum and dad are still on the same council house in the state I grew up in. Um, and it's still a council house. Yeah, people think it's unusual that people like me end up doing this. It has been very gradual and I'm getting on a bit now. 
and I've been doing this for a long time. So there was this never... This is the microphone. Andrew looks very young. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you're here in the House of Lords. But there was never a moment that I'm getting into politics. For me, it was just sort of things happened. Like I was given opportunities, took them. People encouraged me to do things that I would never have done on my own. Nigel, my husband, as you know, has been very supportive and sort of always pushed me. You can do that. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure. Yes, you can. Have a go. What have you got to lose? So that encouragement has been important to me. But that 17-year-old Angela Evans, as she was now, would have been absolutely terrifying. How have your politics changed? Um, not terribly much in some ways. Perhaps a bit more thoughtful, which I hope they're a bit more thoughtful. Um, but I think the basic instincts I grew up with, what mum and dad gave me, pretty much the same basic instincts I've got now. We were talking about this the other night, actually, because you've got this curious mix here. You've got a lot of people in the House of Lords who've got backgrounds like mine. And then you've got some people who have been born to this place, and their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers are in the House of Commons or the House of Lords. That's this curious mix you probably don't find in too many other places. It's quite interesting to see that. And uh, it took me a long time to accept. When I first became an MP, I thought some sit on the green benches. I was always convinced someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you shouldn't be here. It's, it's taken a while for me to accept that I can do this and this is where I work. If you'd have had an elder brother in some families, you would never have got here. Well, you're actually <laughs> a younger brother. You'd have been passed over yeah. if you'd have been part of the, uh, the Blue Bloods. In, in the old days, uh, they've gone. Those days have gone. And so thank you very much for No, great to talking us. to you. Very kind of you. Um, you can uh, go to our website, which is mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes, that's A Y. Yes, and you can leave a comment and subscribe to the podcasts. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at JBTMiller. Kevin is at... At Kevin underscore Maguire. And as you said earlier, your Twitter handle is... At Lady Basildon. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with another special guest from the other side of politics. Look forward to speaking to you now. The eyes to the left... 